1: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where the history community unleashes Greek fire. The podcast where the history makes a gallant last stand against the full might of myth. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am joined as ever by my loyal co-host and our man in the labyrinth of Knossos, Kyle Glover.
0: Which man in the labyrinth of Knossos? What are you implying?
1: which one would you like you're the ancient greek expert here mm, I'll, I'll leave that to the audience to decide hello everyone right then vote on twitter where you would like kyle to be okay so this week dear rages we are back in truly ancient times looking at possibly the earliest civilization that we've covered so far on history rage and an area that i know kyle has a keen interest in so joining us on this epic odyssey, we are joined by historian and author of The Bronze Lie, Mike Cole. Mike, welcome to History Rage. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Feeling angry? Uh, I mean, I'll get there. I'll Let's get there. Talk- good out Okay, so you've come to us courtesy of Osprey Publishing, at which point Kyle and I realised that this might actually be a bigger project than we thought. So uh, a big shout-out to Osprey, and thank you very much for contacting us. We love your work. Uh, but I understand you've had quite the varied career before you reached here. Um, so can you tell us about that, and then how you became an author in this particular field?
2: Uh, it's, it's The career has been all over the map. Um, I think most people... Uh, do this, but they join the military and then they decide they want to make money. So they get out and they become private military contractors. It's a nice way of saying mercenaries, uh-huh. PMCs. Yeah. I did it the opposite way. Uh, when nine 11 happened, uh, England too, not just America, we went insane and we started giving um, operational jobs to contractors, but it was the fastest way to get into the fight. Um, if you try to get a federal position, it's going to take you years. And so I got hired and trained uh, as a, a targeting officer um, which is, uh, if you've seen the film Zero Dark Thirty, that's the role that Jessica Chastain's character uh, plays. And uh, did some time in Iraq um, on working counterterrorism objectives. And I, uh, I very quickly soured on um, sort of professional um, corporate uh, warfare uh, because it. It is highly incentivized to continue the conflict, right? If the war stops, you you stop Mm -hmm. making money. So I did it backwards and then I went into the military. Um, In fact, I'll never forget um, uh, on my third tour in Iraq uh, when I went over there as a, a paramilitary intelligence officer for the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, I had to take leave from my military unit in the United States Coast Guard to go fight in a war on behalf of (laughs) <laughs> as a, as a uniformed paramilitary civilian for, for the DIA. Just for your British listeners, um, your RNLI is an unarmed charity. Our Coast Guard, which performs the same function, is a war fighting agency yes. and, and a law enforcement agency. Mm. So U.S. Coast Guard has fought in every uh, war that America has participated in. Um, and, for, you know, the Coast Guard led me into law enforcement. I did some time with the um, NYPD uh, also domestic disaster response work. And, uh, then I got yanked out into the corporate security world where I work right now. Um, don't ask me to, uh. Identify the company. I, I, I no, no, that. we won't. We won't. That. You that might have to kill us. <laughs> right. Well, uh, uh, and then the uh, the final uh the sort of final uh, step on the cursus honorum for all of us who walk this path is we all wind up in the volunteer fire brigades. So I'm in. A, I'm a firefighter uh, out here uh, in the rural town, about two hours north of New York City, where I live. Wow, wow! I
1: think that's possibly the coolest background that we've had on.
2: Bye. Oh, I-, <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. A lot of, a lot of historians are. uh are uh, you know have a, have that military background? Oh, but you asked me how I got into history.
1: Yeah, so, how did you how did you end up writing books about tonight's subject?
2: Right. So I, I started out as a science fiction and fantasy writer, um, and I did about ten novels uh, in that in that ilk. And, and like when you do fantasy, of course, you study a ton of um, ancient and military history, mm-hmm. uh, ancient and medieval military history because it you know plugs into that world. Um mean, I was always a big time war gamer. And I had been playing war games where the Roman Legion fought. I'll call it the Greek. It's really the Hellenistic Balkan phalanx, the pike arm phalanx, mind you, not the hoplite um, phalanx. And I got super into it. and I wanted to find a book on it. And uh, there wasn't one. Uh, There was articles and stuff. But literally in English, there was no book where you could learn about the Legion fighting the phalanx at book length. And I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to write this. And at the time, my agent um, told me, well, you can't do that. You don't have a Ph.D., no one's going to take you seriously. And man, all right, motherfucker, tell me what I can't do. You know, that's great. <laughs> so I taught myself Latin and Greek. I, I got the deal with Osprey. I wrote the book. Um, I was very, very lucky to get the mentorship of Dr. Michael Livingston. It's- One of the great military historians of our age, um, and the co author with me uh, of my latest book, The Killing Ground, which is a book about all the battles of Thermopylae. And that'll be coming out uh, from um, Osprey uh, in 2024. Uh, You know, most people know about the the battle in 480 BC that the film 300 is based on, yep. but there were actually many battles yes. from before that, all the way up to World War II. Yeah. We'll and definitely almost, nope. get a yeah.
1: second rage coming on on that. Man. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't we'll, wait we'll for you to meet
2: Mike. Ma- yeah. I can't wait for you to meet Mike. He's, he's not only like my, my sort of his, historical muse and my, and, and look, he's, a, I'll, I'll say this. I have a lot of confidence in my work, but you cannot compare a ambitious amateur, a dedicated amateur like myself, who's put in a few years to someone like Michael Livingston, who has dedicated his entire life from the beginning full time to doing nothing but studying this stuff. Mm. So, you know, he really, really helped me with historiography, he went to Greece with me, um, and sort of held my hand and, and uh, worked with me through this stuff. And a lot of the historian I am is due to his mentorship. So I'm really excited uh, to be co authoring with him on that next book. Okay, so while we're, well, we're looking initially
1: at Thermopylae, then let's let's kick into tonight's rage. Then, yeah. So, Mike, mm-hmm. with, uh, with with all the emotion that uh, you consider it worthy of, would you please tell the amassed phalanx of our audience out there what you wish people would just stop believing?
2: Okay, so this is this is the thing that's funny. Is I know what you want. You want me to pick one issue yeah. and blast at it. I'll blast at something. I'm going to blast it both sides, right? Okay, yep. so I – what did I obviously – why did I write The Bronze Lie? Anybody who looks at the title The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy, reads any of my interviews or anything like that, knows that I looked at the fact that the right wing in in all of the world – so it isn't just the UKIP. I don't even know if the UKIP is still a thing in the UK. Yeah, um, or well, right. The, the far right. And I'm not talking about principled conservatives and and, and ideological right wingers on both sides of the aisle with whom we can reasonably disagree. Mm. I'm talking about crazy people. Yes, yeah. You know, I'm talking about violent, reactionary, pseudo fascists, like the people that that no one looks at and goes, Oh, those people have a good idea, right? Yeah. For, for them, the Spartan became this icon. And there was it was just used. I mean, you remember, they, they called them the Spartans all the time mm. in British Parliament. Uh, just uh, as part of the Brexit movement. Um, on, on, and it's always referring to the far fringe. And they were using the Spartans as this sort of anti-immigrant, militaristic, you know, that the Spartans never surrender and they never run from a fight. And they, but also they don't drink and they don't like wealth and they prize the state above the... And if you take literally two seconds and look <laughs> at any of the source material, which is all publicly available in translation you can see that that is nonsense. It's <laughs> <So the Spartans laughs> lost battles all the time, that they surrendered, that they ran from fights, that they got drunk, that they took Bri... It's just not true. And it's obviously not true. You could, like, take two seconds with Thucydides, take two seconds with Herodotus. Like, it's not true. Um, and yet it has become this absolute fact among everyone. And I'm like, what the hell? This is nonsense. And then I thought, well... Look, if the Spartans have never lost a battle, we should be able to get... I mean, look, we, we know all the battles yeah. they fought in. Let's make a list. Let's make a scorecard. And in the center of my book, The Bronze Lie, there is a scorecard. And I list, here are the battles they won. Here are the ones they lost. Here's where they surrendered. Here's where they ran. And it's obvious. They, they lost a little more than half of the time. I'm, I'm looking at that list right
0: now. It is defeat, 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 victory, defeat, 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 victory, victory, defeat, defeat, and so on.
2: But the thing is, Kyle, like, this is not rocket science. Like, you know, when I, when I would have interviews, the UK Daily Express interviewed me, and they're just like, oh my God. And I'm like, oh my God, what? Like. And all I did was, like, take the existing source material and count. Like, it's not complicated. <laughs> um, so I was sort of, like, like, I'm glad that people like it, and, it's, and it was a fun project to do and really illuminating. So that part was sort of my initial rage. But, but, and here's where I'm going to rage mm-hmm. in the other direction. As soon as I started doing that, the left-wing fringe, so I make no secrets. I consider myself kind of a moderate leftist. Try to be in the middle, but my sympathies are probably more on the liberal side in the United States. People in the, on the left side immediately be- began using the book and the idea of the book as a hammer to beat their right-wing opponents. And saying things like, yeah, the Spartans sucked, and they were all, you know, pussies, and they, you know, de- you know they were all gay. And, and not true, you know, like all and using it in the opposite direction. And I was horrified. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something. One of my biggest regrets in life is the role I have played in savaging civic discourse, global discourse, globally, not just in the United States. We have reached a point where we can't talk to each other anymore. We, there's no such thing as a disagreement. There's only just savaging each other. There's no such thing as sitting with an idea that you don't agree with and listening to it and reaching some kind of compromise and I really think that that is a tide that is overtaking not just the United States and England, but the world. Mm. And I don't know what to do about, about it. It terrifies me. And it, it, you know, it's funny, we have all these articles about AI and the, and the dawn of civilizational collapse. I actually think it's the lack of our ability to disagree in a normal human uh, accepting way that portends civilizational mm. collapse. And I'm terrified of it. And it's only in retrospect. That I see the role I played in it. And I am yeah. so deeply ashamed. And the I'm very proud of the bronze lie. And I stand by everything that's in that book. It's a good book. I, I firmly believe that you can call me an egomaniac for saying that. But my whole perspective on what I was trying to do with it and why I did it has shifted dramatically. So I don't know if that counts as a rager, but that—that's the thing I keep saying whenever I get a chance. Well, that, that certainly
1: counts as a rage, and certainly what we're going <laughs> to do is we're going to pick apart kind of some of that myth of Sparta uh, and so forth. So I—I I will start us off. Well, in fact strictly speaking not even me that's starting us off because this is a question that's actually come from one of our patreon subscribers one of our you know one of our people out there that likes this so much they pay money for it we we love you uh this particular one is andrew J. so thank you very much for submitting this andrew and so he starts off with did anyone in antiquity actually regard the spartans as any sort of elite super soldiers or is it purely a modern stereotype and what sort of historiography and pop culture caused that myth to come about
2: okay so this is a really excellent question um and i would say yes um and uh, we'll say this you have to start from the basis is that we don't have apart from very minor pieces of epigraphy epigraphy being inscriptions chiseled Mm. in stone Mm. we do not have any writing from the spartans about themselves we don't um which makes this all completely opaque most of what we know about sparta comes from frankly fanboys it comes a largely Athenian fanboys who are writing about when we hear about their prowess. I, I'd say that the, probably the biggest influence there is Xenophon, who I'm sure you're well familiar with, mm-hmm. Kyle, yes. who is known to be this incredible Spartan um, uh, pro-partisan and a biographer of the Spartan king, I guess, um, I will say there is enough of a body of praise across enough Uh, contemporary sources from the period that I believe there's fire under that smoke Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe that the impression of Spartan military prowess existed even in their own time so my answer to your question um, is yes Aristotle has a great comment on um, but the question of then the question becomes why, right? Why did people think that the Spartans were tough, even in their own time? And that has less to do, of course. the The answer it found in the bronze lie, the mythic answer as well. They were they were the only professional army in the ancient world. They were the only professional ancient Greek army. They did nothing but train for war, which is hot buttered bullshit. It is not true. Um, and in fact, we know that they spent lots of their time managing their estates, politicking, you know, doing sports. By the way. We have plenty of, of documentation that the Spartans engaged in sports. We have no documentation of them drilling. No source mm-hmm. says that they were training for war. Aristotle has a great comment, which you have to take in light of the amateur nature of hoplite warfare in ancient Greece, which is you got to remember there were no professional armies. Right? Think about it. Think about a, a world populated entirely by reservists. What are you doing? You're a farmer, right? And then suddenly you hear a trumpet sounding from the Acropolis of your nearest city state. You run to the shed. There's an old olive pruning hook that your granddad beat into a spear. You got a helmet, a bronze helmet that's turned green. You haven't picked the thing up in, in forever. You grab that. You grab the spear. You show up in the town square. You form into a phalanx. What is a phalanx? You overlap shields. You point the spears that way. You go that way. It's designed to be idiot proof because you're a farmer. You're not a, you're not a, yeah. it's, it's, an, it's the amateur nature of hoplite warfare. Okay. Well, if you're a Spartan aristocrat, and homo, uh, what they call a homoioi a, a similar appear, a lot of people call them the Spartan knights. Then you, the fact that you train at all makes you better than everyone else. And Aristotle says that very much. He says that the reason that the Spartans were considered so tough was not that they trained particularly hard, but that they trained at all. And so, so the answer to your um, patron is yes, but probably not for the reasons you think. Okay. And then what kind of cascades this, this idea on then? So what, okay. And then this is another great question. And, uh, and so I can't even take credit, uh, for this idea because I got it from the brilliant historian, Tom Holland. If you're going to, if you're a listener, should read one book by him, please let it be Persian fire, uh, which is, uh, dovetails most, uh, most neatly into the topic that we're discussing. He's just, one of the most brilliant narrative historians, both from a scholarly and a pro-styling perspective. I, I can't recommend his work enough. Um, but uh, he wrote in a review of the film 300. This is the film that covers the Battle of Thermopylae in mm-hmm. 40 BC. You have to remember that most people think of Thermopylae as this defeat that is so glorious and so devastating to Persian power that it may as well have been a victory. And that is also hot butter bullshit. It is a complete trivial, futile uh, defeat it achieved none of its tactical or strategic objectives. Um, and the Greeks basically just got steamrolled and the, and the incredible, supposedly undefeatable Spartans with them. And so, um, you have Themistocles, who's the, uh, the head on the Athenian side, sort of looking at this and thinking, oh my God, Greece is going to surrender. Like we need a story to tell about this loss or the entire. Landmass is going to capitulate. We're not going to fight the Persians again. And so he spins this bullshit story about a faded oracle of a Spartan king who must die so Greece might be saved. Um, and and uh, and spreads it. And he is successful beyond his wildest dreams of perpetuating this legend, building upon some facts as we just discussed yeah. in our answer to your um, patron. But it's successful beyond his wildest dreams. And it's successful beyond his wildest dreams because it plays into the fundamental conception of human insecurity, that we, all of us, we're not good enough, we're not tough enough, we don't work hard enough, and if we want to be all we can be, if we want to be great, we need to emulate some icon.
0: So that's Thermopylae, but what other battles or conflicts did Sparta take part in?
2: Oh my goodness! Sparta was, uh, you know, and look—they're not unique to this. I, I, again, I don't want to give the impression that they were any more militaristic than any other city-state. Um, but like most Greek policies in the ancient world, they were in at, at war from their inception uh, to the end. In the Bronze Lie, um, I focus on, I, I select four focus battles, and those battles are all designed to really dive deep on Spartan defeats, because that's the point of the book, to show mm-hmm. that they weren't invincible. Um, and they evoke the Peloponnesian War, which was Sparta's conflict. Well, the Peloponnesian League, which was really dominated by Sparta, with uh, the Delian League, which was really dominated by Athens uh, for control of Greece um, in the middle and the end of the 5th century BC. One of the focus battles, though, that I, that I cover in that book is from the Clemonean War, which occurs in the Hellenistic era. Uh, this battle is about second battle of Celassia in 222 BC. And in this case, the Spartans are fighting much like you, if you were to see the Spartan army at that battle, they would look just like the phalanx of Alexander the Great in Persia with 21 foot long pikes, not fighting as hoplites at all. And a lot of people sort of, when they think of the Spartan, they think only of the hoplites that they see um, at Thermopylae that they were shown in, in the film 300. Uh, so the the truth is is that Sparta was at at war throughout many many uh, conflicts throughout its history, right up until it was subsumed uh, by Rome uh, in the first century BC.
1: Okay, can you give us a? Uh, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of battles there. Any uh, any other any of them where there were actually any good?
2: Oh, of course, yeah. So look, I want to be clear on this. In the bronze lie, I'm specifically attempting to dismantle the bronze lie, yeah. which is that the Spartans were the greatest super warriors in the history of the world. So I'm necessarily focusing on defeat. Yes. but the, And also this, we, I noticed, I mentioned in the scorecard that the Spartans lost a little more than they won. Well, is that a good record? Is that a bad record? I don't know. Yeah, to You could say question, the same about that, the
1: English. You could probably say the same about the Americans. Correct.
2: <laughs> correct. You know, how do you measure... The success of a military. It's their ability to project the nation state's policy uh, abroad. That's, you know, you have Clausewitz's famous quote that war is the continuation of policy by other means. We would have to do the same scorekeeping process for Athens, for Thebes, the other major classical Greek powers, and see how they stacked up. I will say that the Spartans had plenty of extraordinary victories. The one that I would really recommend readers look into is the first battle of Mantinea in 418 BC, where it begins incredibly badly. Um, and the Spartans show incredible discipline and organization rotating their entire battle line 90 degrees. I understand that that doesn't sound like a big deal. <laughs> but when you understand the amateur nature of hoplites, mm. and you understand the realities of, of ancient battle, rotating your battle line 90 degrees without losing cohesion and then being able to engage an enemy to your front is absolutely an achievement worthy of the record books. It's but amazing. I would say yeah. trying to turn your battle lines
1: now 90 degrees would right. be an achievement in the right. age of satellite, radio communication, right. and right. everything. To right. so do that when you've literally got trumpets and
2: flags and word of mouth
1: right. to get right.
2: people to do that is is yeah. stunning. And it was in the, it was also in the midst of chaos where uh, a gap had formed in the Spartan line due to a couple of Spartan commanders. We don't know if they refused orders or didn't get orders or something. But this massive gap opened. It was exploited. The Spartan left was completely unraveling, and they pulled it together. It's a it's a truly glorious moment for Sparta. And what's so amazing to me is that Thermopylae, which was a totally embarrassing defeat, where they were just utterly outgeneraled. Uh, is known as a household word. I mean, it's everyone knows about it. And Mantinea, which is this incredible military achievement. Not unless you're a nerd for this stuff. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, you get 30, you get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month so Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited
2: more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we've mentioned kind of where when we mentioned the scorecard there, um, you've got other you know, other states around So, how does spartan military prowess tactics abilities and so forth compare with other city states chiefly athens because they're, they're the big ones but you've got your corinth you've got your Thebes.
2: so i right so i would i would exclude i would exclude corinth only because uh, i think it's realistic to say that if you're looking at classical greece um, I mean when you get into Hellenistic Greece, then the Achaean League has to be considered. But when we when we talk about classical Greece, we really are talking about three major locuses of military power that that champ that lead leagues. And the first is Sparta, the second is Athens, and the third is Thebes, um, which is modern day Theba. Uh and it is incredibly difficult to say. Uh, who was militarily more powerful. And I would be really hesitant to do it because I would need to perform the same kind of deep dive I did on Spartan military history, battle by battle with each of those um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, city states. And I have not, however, I will say this. I just got back from my fourth trip on uh, from Greece. Fiva is a tiny little town in the middle of a, of an open field that no one ever goes to and is not exciting. Uh, Sparta, Sparti, modern Sparty, is a little bit bigger and a little more bustling. But still, um, I'm trying to think of an English town to compare. I mean, it's it's easily smaller than Bristol. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's probably smaller than Reading, is, is probably the way of saying it. And Athens is one of the great cities of yes. the book. Um, that is unmistakably the capital of Greece, the net importer of Greek culture. You know, now, there are a lot of reasons that Athens is in that position that are non-military. But I will say that we do have that evidence. Yeah, uh, as to speak to to who came out on top. Yes, all the
0: things that happen after to make Athens the capital of Greece doesn't happen to Sparta or to Thebes. It's Athens for a reason, even into the 20th century.
2: And there's some there's also some geographical uh, considerations there. You know, Sparta only has the Erodus. You know, Athens has the Piraeus. Yes. you know, there's the the access to to water location the arable land those kinds of things and there are and there are also non-military political decisions and sociocultural um commitments that that these respective city states made so it's i i it would be reductive to ascribe it entirely to a military but in the absence of other uh data the only thing i can point to is you know i I always uh whenever i I go to people thieves today is called thiva Uh, pronounce you would pronounce it t-h-i-v-a thiva no one says thieves Um, and if I go to someone and go, oh, you're going to Greece, are you going to visit Theva? They're going to go, is it what? And if I go, are you going to visit Athens? They are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Athens has the staying power there, doesn't it? For sure. But in terms of the, I mean, they're always fighting amongst each other. They each, each place is, broadly speaking, holding its own at the time for, for various different reasons. So like we say, Sparta is not light years ahead of anybody else.
2: No, no. I would say Sparta Sparta is not light years ahead of everybody else. And in fact, Sparta did not endure as an independent military political entity. It was subsumed. It was subsumed into the Achaean League and then eventually into Rome. Um, You know, they they lost their uh, military political independence. Now, Athens has lost it and gained it and lost it and gained it, but they, you know, by and large endured. Okay.
0: A a little bit earlier, you mentioned there's no record of the Spartans drilling or training for military action. But we do hear, particularly. I'm going to keep going back to the film 300. The opening is the boys being trained to be Spartans. It's called the agoge. Am I pronouncing
2: that correctly? Okay, well, so let's start right there. One person calls it the agoge, and, and then right. that's a we term. go. So Xenophon, who's far, who's far more pro-Spartan and farmer, he calls it the Pavia, which means the the education. So again, you know, we often are. And almost everything we know about Via Goge is from Plutarch, who is a Roman Greek writing 500 years after what he's describing, sometimes more. And Plutarch's Parallel Lives, which is the main source that we're working off, of also his Moralia, his Epithigmata, which is the sayings of the Spartans. His goal is not history; his goal is moralization. Mm-hmm. His goal. So when Herodotus writes his histories, he straight up says, look, I'm going to try to get this right. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to tell this story accurately. Does he always do it? I mean, actually, I think he does it more accurately than a lot of people give Mm -hmm. him credit for. Um, But he's at least trying to be an objective historian. Plutarch is making no such claim. Plutarch is trying to teach you something about how to be a good person. That's why he's taking a a Roman life and a Greek life and comparing them. And that is the basis (laughs) And I'm not making this up. That is the basis by which most people believe everything they know about Sparta, including what happened in the Mm Agoge. You know, the the the, that they the story of the fox that gnaws the young boys' innards, that they sleep on rushes and only have one thin cloak, and you know, steal their food and are beaten if they're caught, but expected to do it anyway. And like, yeah, I mean, maybe some of that's true, or maybe it's an exaggeration of something a heck of a lot less severe and you also have to remember at the time that Plutarch was coming up Sparta had become a tourist trap right Sparta was no longer a military political power it was making money on its legend for Roman tourists like Cicero yeah. Cicero would like go there and so what did they do they played it up they had they so the temple of Artemis Orthea, which you can still go see it's it's pretty pretty badly cared for unfortunately at least it was the last time I was there you know they had this whole thing where Spartan boys would be flogged bloody so that they wouldn't, you know, to to test their ability to scream. And there's a lot of speculation, some of it supported, that they were making it worse than it ever had actually been to entertain the Roman tourists. That's the Sparta that Plutarch was seeing when he was writing. So the the only responsible thing to say about the agoge is maybe something like it could have existed, but we cannot know without additional data. And it is also just as likely that either it didn't exist at all or what did exist was a heck of a lot more gentle and, uh, and very different than what's described. This is one thing that is critically important when you write history. We talked about this before we started recording. Mm-hmm. You have got to be, and this is again comes to me from my, my mentor and dear friend and, and co author on my next book, Michael Livingston, committed to getting it right, not being right. And you, and just like a scientist, you have got to rest your conclusions on data and when you don't have sufficient data you have to face your audience and say i'm just riffing here guys i don't know and that is the only responsible way to talk mm-hmm. about frankly most of spartan history and certainly the agoge yeah there's a there's a case here where you can have an opinion
1: you can you, you can draw an idea and you can explain what evidence that you've got that backs that idea, that theory up? But we just don't have any actual proof, do we?
2: We no. sure don't. We sure
1: don't. We do not know. Uh, sadly, missing from a lot of presentations, I see.
2: The whole scene in Three Hundred where Leonidas is facing this wolf. You know, he's a little yeah. boy and he's facing a wolf in the in the winter. And I'm watching this and I'm being like, <laughs> what? Where did you get this? Like, what ancient source references anything remotely like, what are you talking about? Like, this is Frank Miller making it up, straight up making it up. I mean, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. But so's Lord of the Rings, you know? Yeah. Like, are we in the fantasy business or the history business?
1: One thing I think we, we recently had uh, Matt Lewis on, he talked very much about what he called human evidence, which is just working on the way of human nature and the way that people behave and so forth. And if what you're wanting to build is this idea of having this almost standing army, Probably having your children eaten by wolves really isn't the first part of basic training you want to go near, is it?
2: Well, I, I, I love, I lo- we say, this, Matthew Lewis was his name? Yeah,
1: Matthew Lewis. He came on to do, uh, he came on to talk about the princes in the tower.
2: I gotta, I gotta look him up because he's exactly right. This idea of human evidence. So, so I don't know if you either of you have children. Ask yourself this question if, if your government came to you and said, your seven year old child, we're going to take him away from you and put him in a school. He will likely be beaten and starved to death. You might not be okay with that. <laughs> I might, I you might, might, I might possess, have an issue. You, know, you, might, you might try to pull some strings. Be-
0: uh, I'd, I'd make an awful comment about while that was, kind of what your school
1: was like, wasn't it, Paul? But uh,
0: there we go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do not <laughs> knock my alma mater. <laughs> I know it was Hogwarts. And, and, we have, and by the way, we have examples of this. Where the the myth of Sparta and the reality don't match up in this exact way. I'll give you one. So everyone knows, or maybe not everyone. I know Kyle knows about the idea of the trisante, the trembler. That if you ran from a fight, or even had the temerity to survive defeat as a member of the of the Spartan phalanx, you would be forever ostracized. Have to shave half your beard and mustache. You couldn't shop. You you know you'd never marry. You'd be treated like shit your whole life. You know the whole thing, and that everyone would just dismiss you. Well, at the Battle of of Pilos and Sphactory in 425 BC, 120 Spartan knights, the elite all surrendered and were taken prisoner by Athens. And the Spartans left no stone unturned to get them back. And when they got them back, they did not punish them like that. They let them off. And what does that tell you? That tells you when you have 120 fathers, brothers, husbands who are pillars of the community and they get captured, even if they're tremblers, this vaunted militaristic Spartan society does not go, screw those guys. We don't want those cowards back. We only want real Spartans. No, they love them and they try to get them back because that's what humans do. Mm. We love each other and we take care of each other especially around families. So I really love that point that he made. What do you call it? Human. Um, he, he just he
1: referred to it as human evidence. He said, there's human evidence and there's document evidence. He
2: is exactly right. And uh, it is brilliant. Well done. Awesome. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'd have to say, because you're a military man when you your first week of basic training, if they said, here's a thin cloak and there is the wilderness, <laughs> you would have probably laid, you'd probably resigned there. And then yeah, I mean, Like maybe this isn't for
2: me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, so I've got a, uh, now we've got a, uh, another question here from another of our history ragers. So thank you very much, Simon Clark. Now, he starts this question on the basis that he might completely have the wrong end of the stick already. So ride with us here. Um, okay. But he does say that has uh, a memory coming from potentially horrible histories that Spartans fought, or sort of fought, that female Spartans would fight alongside male partners. How did women fit into the social fabric of ancient Sparta? And how does it challenge the perception of the Spartan warrior woman myth as well?
2: Okay, so uh, the the Spartan warrior woman myth. We only have a couple of brief stories about women fighting, and they don't seem unique to Sparta. We they they seem to be, you know, certainly any woman is capable of of, of getting in the fight, especially yeah. um, or even in as misogynistic as universally misogynistic a society as classical Greece was. And I think there's pretty broad agreement that you know a woman in classical Greece lived probably even worse than a woman in Saudi Arabia today. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's, it was not a great a road to for women where women, but, but I, there is also evidence uh, that women did much better in Sparta and that, and that their Sparta was a very extraordinary society, not because they let women fight, but because they let women inherit because that, that a woman was not considered mm-hmm. to be a parcel that was inherited along with land, but that had the right to own and inherit it themselves. And also the ability to go nude and the ability to participate in sports training, not military training, mind you. There's no evidence of that. And the reason I believe this is that Aristotle writes about it, and Aristotle is a dyed-in-the-wool misogynist, and just is constantly, really, uh, you can really pick up from the tone of his writing how scandalized he is. He called, I think, he called Spartan women thigh flashers because they would expose their breasts or something when they were when they were doing training. So it's very clear he does not like this. So he's not incentivized to um uh, and you get from that tone that uh you know and again, I, I can't be sure of it, but you get from that tone that there's some um, truth to what he's saying. but what's also interesting is that because women could inherit, we have there our our evidence for another aspect of the bronze lie that all wealth was distributed equally and one of the things that occurred is as Spartan men died and their wives and, and daughters inherited their land, that land Became concentrated in those particular families. Well, the Spartans had the, the siskenia, the, the, the messes that you had to be able to pay your mess due to maintain your status as a homoyo, as a Spartan knight. And if you didn't have enough land to produce the agricultural products you needed to pay those mess dues, you fell out of that franchise. And this resulted in what's called the oliganthropea, the, the, the fewness of men that the Spartan citizen franchise shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And part of that was the strength of Spartan inheritance laws and the comparative equality with which women were treated. So it's interesting that that thing that I consider very positive about Spartan society, the the, the comparative rights. I don't want to compare the, the rights that Spartan <laughs> women had with modern women yeah. in, in almost any country. It was still not great, but it was certainly better than the rest of ancient Greece. That that exposed a, a tremendous weakness and a piece of the bronze law. Yeah.
0: And um, so to wrap things up a little, um, how does Sparta decline? You mentioned they're conquered by Rome. Um, and how did that decline contrast with this view of them as this great power, this great military power?
2: Right. So, you know, this is a, this is a tough one. Um, I have a conclusions chapter in the back of the bronze mm-hmm. line. I, I won't um, get into it completely, but I just mentioned the old yes. the pay this fewness of men. One of the things that certainly was a problem, and it actually uh, caused the Spartans to in, uh, do create what they called the Neo Damodeus, where they would take their slave cast, the helots, and arm and equip them as hoplites. Which, of course, uh, is extremely risky when you have subjugated slaves and you're arming them and giving them military yeah. training. But they had no choice because of the of the uh, de- of the decline of their own um, military elite, which is certainly um, one reason. If I had to posit one reason for Sparta's Uh, inability to keep up militarily, I would say is social conservatism. There is a lot of evidence that Sparta was indeed a conservative society. And a lot of people think that battle in the ancient world was always the same, and it wasn't. Uh, The the ancient battlefield was constantly undergoing revolutions. Now, granted, technology doesn't move on an additive plane, it moves on a geometric plane, meaning that, you know, one piece of tech Enables another piece of tech. Enables another piece of tech. So change accelerates, which is why we're in the age of AI now, where we feel like we're approaching the singularity. Um, So things change slower on the ancient battlefield, but they still change. Look at us going from the the hoplite with the six foot, uh, excuse me, the seven to nine foot spear and the aspis round shield to the peshetairos of Alexander's phalanx with twenty one foot pike and a shield hanging on their arm. Sparta did adapt in siege warfare, in the use of combined arms, but they appear to have done it much more slowly uh, because of this conservatism. And in my estimation, and I and I make this point in my conclusions uh, chapter of the book, they didn't change fast enough. Um and that conservatism really held them back uh and 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 made them uh really too weak to keep up with the other um Greek city-states that could. And you really see this at the Battle of Lutra. In, in um, 371 BC, which I uh, profile in the book and really say is the battle that broke Sparta's spine, where battlefield innovations, tactical innovations, partly by the Theban heroes Epaminondas and Pelopidas, Sparta just had no answer to it. And they deployed it the same way they always had and, and were rolled over as a result. And they, in fact, the second battle of Mantinea, I mentioned the first, repeats the Battle of Leuctra in terms of its deployment almost exactly. And the Spartans do the same thing again. So there really is a lot of evidence that they didn't change fast
1: enough to keep up. Not the advanced military that we're led to believe them. Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Mike. That was uh, that was absolutely yes, no, it was very much in fact a Greek epic. Thank
2: you. Oh, thank you. That was a lot of fun.
1: Well, if you'd like to know more, then you can and should start by reading the excellent book, The Bronze Lie. Uh, we will have links to that at the History Rage Bookshop and links to it throughout the show notes as well. And you can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Cole. And that's Mike with a Y. Uh, although don't really turn up much on social
2: media. Yeah, so you well, may I, well well not going to respond. For, for a guy who built his career on social media, I've decided that it is extremely bad for me. And I am really not using it much.
1: Well, you know, if you, if anybody's got any further questions or anything like that, I'm sure that you can forward them to us. We'll forward them to you. Oh,
2: well, no, 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 no need. I, I do, I do maintain a website, mikecole.com, mykecol com. My email address is right on there and I don't get so much fan mail that I can't answer every single one.
1: Feel free to reach out to me. There you go, History Rages. There you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I am at Kyle G History. And we will be remaining on social media as well. <laughs> and if you're loving this, then why not join our angry mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put future guests' questions, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. Uh, but until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye bye. Bye
0: bye.